a piece that you can find on my website, uh, two lectures on African <coughs> development. Also on my website there is a category, African Revolution, and there are several period times over the last few years when I thought I was launching a book called The African Revolution. And uh, I basically quit uh, last year, but there's quite a lot of stuff there. This series of lectures has been about the prospects for African development seen in the light of its history, and that history proposed within a global perspective and not simply a continental or regional perspective. And the question of development, of course, is one that we've addressed at several times, but I prefer to see it as the name for the successor regime to colonialism. In other words, it's the name that was given to the relations between the rich imperialist or former imperialist countries and the poor countries in the decades after World War Two. Uh, that's not to say that development is devoid of meaning, but it has that particular application as a political form. And in any case, the focus on African development has largely been negative. It's been about uh, what didn't happen. I mean, whatever development was supposed to be in the post-colonial period in Africa, it was widely considered not to happen not to have happened. So my uh, starting point is not what didn't happen, but what did happen in the 20th century. And for that I draw on this idea of an urban revolution, you know, which comes from trial, has been applied to Africa in contrast to Eurasia by Jack Goody, and which is based on the premise that Africa south of the Sahara uh, did not go through an urban revolution that united North Africa to the Middle East and Eurasia. And as uh, in the light of the previous lecture, there has always been a sense that not only is North Africa exceptional, partly for not being all that black, partly for having been part of traditional uh, agrarian civilization, but also that Southern Africa, particularly South Africa, but also to some extent Rhodesia, uh, experienced a form of capitalist development that did not take place elsewhere, either in the middle belt of, of African countries or in the north. And as we saw, this was a, a deeply flawed and partial uh, attempt to install national capitalism for only parts of the population this division uh, of the population was the ultimate reason for its failure, uh, a failure that is ongoing despite the blurring of the racial edges uh, over the last two decades. So if we ask what happened in the 20th century, sorry, before uh, there's one, just one further recap, which is, you know, that probably it's wise to think of Africa as a continental region that contains black Africans, Arabs, Europeans and others. Uh, but it's also the case, and this is something against which uh, people of color have to struggle, Africans have been a very powerful visual symbol of inequality in the world. It's very easy to pick out a black person. Uh, as opposed to the browns, yellows, pinks, and, and the rest of it. And so, you know, there is a very deep sense in which being African exposes one to uh, a legacy in which it's assumed that Africans are uh, at the bottom of the global pile and deserve to be there for whatever reasons. So, you know, the issue of race can't be wished away by saying simply that you know, Africa is a, a region containing many different kinds of people. But I think it's probably wise for us to concentrate on that. And indeed, there are plenty of examples of uh, Africa as a functioning regional entity. The NEPAD, the, the AU, 
um, the African Cup of Nations, and so on and so forth. So, and obviously Africa isn't one thing, but I argue that there is a tradition of treating it as one thing, which is Pan-Africanism, which played a major part in uh, the anti-colonial revolution of the mid-20th century. And uh, I believe that African unity is still a project that deserves consideration, even promotion, and it will be the points on which I will end. So if we ask what happened, then clearly the main thing that happened is that Africa started out as the least urbanized and, and least densely populated major region in the world in 1900, and by 2000 had acquired almost half of its population in cities, had become an incredible population group during this period, which is ongoing and which continues to expand the share of world population that is occupied by Africans. Now, whatever you think of these projections, the idea of Africa having a quarter of the world's population in 2050 and over a third by the end of the century, I mean, is a major thing to think about. And indeed, you can be sure that the Europeans the, and the Americans and the Asians are thinking about it. I mean, they, uh, you know, I live in France and I mean, there are scare stories every day in the press about what's going to happen when all these Africans descend on us and so on. So this is a major, and particularly if you take Jack Goody's argument derived from Gordon Child that that Africa's social structures have been different from those of Eurasia because of the low intensity of production, the dispersion of the population, the fact that land was not a scarce factor in terms of poverty and so on and so forth. And all of this has changed. So the first thing that I argue, quite apart from the fact that there are now so many people living in cities, which has to be our starting point, it's also the case that agricultural production has seen significant intensification throughout Africa, if not evenly. And this has created the possibility for urban elites, both colonial and post-colonial, to erect uh, cities and states which are capable to maintain class differences of a quite developed kind through the extraction of services from this intensified agriculture, some of it for export, some uh, for domestic groups. So instead of saying, you know, that Africa hasn't developed as we would have liked, the gap between the rich and poor countries has not been narrowed even widely, we should be thinking about the consequences of uh, most of Africa joining in what may indeed be an antiquated mode of social organization and production uh, seen globally, but it is, I think, quite new for the region as a whole. And I also believe, I mean, we, our notions of modernity, of, of capitalist development, of the emergence of modern states and societies and so on, depend on the idea of a major break between the societies of the last two centuries and those that preceded them. But I think we can argue that, that this, it was never that serious a break. In fact, Jack Goody, in his work, argues that too much is made of the difference introduced by the Industrial Revolution and that capitalism is very ancient. And this all supports the idea that the West is different and the Asians backward and so on. But he argues that the speed with which the Industrial Revolution has been taken up in, in Asia, which in fact is faster than the Renaissance uh, uh, developed in Italy, was taken up by Northwestern Europe. The speed of this it has to do with the fundamental similarity of the institutions that underlie societies in East and West. And that some of our notions that we have broken with that pattern need revision. 
And this is certainly, you know, I, I mean, I would argue that the dominant institutions of our world are still those that came into being in Charles or Morgan's urban revolution 5,000 years ago. Their states, cities, world religions, a certain pattern of family life, racism, a certain pattern of warfare, and so on and so forth. I mean, that, that we haven't broken with these. I mean, just look at the United States, for example. I mean, it becomes inconceivable how, you know, 80% of the population could be holy rollers from the 17th century in the 21st century in the United States, unless you recognize that American capitalism is still built on some very profoundly old institutions that they share with the rest of the world. So this is the, the problematic. And of course, Marx, Marx's analysis of capitalism is not that capitalism constitutes a major break. I mean, on the one hand, he thinks it does. The production through private property begins to smash up traditional social structures and individuate society and lay the basis for a new social form. But he also argues that capitalism is feudalism in drag. He thought his main theoretical contribution was the idea of surplus value. Why did he call it surplus value? Because the mode of extraction under feudalism is surplus labor. What you do is you take some part of people's labor that they use to produce for themselves and you appropriate that surplus product. And I mean, the whole point of uh, Marx's analysis in Capital is that this is exactly what is happening under early industrial capitalism. Only the form of extracting the labor has become the production of commodities, which changes it in some important respects. But his main point is trying to persuade uh, the workers that they are much better off than feudal peasants. And this against the, 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 the dominant ideology of political economy, which says that workers and capitalists together benefit if they take power from people who live from landed rent. So this issue of just how new is the dispensation we're living under uh, was actually consolidated under national capitalism, which I argue was a form that emerged in the middle to late 19th century through a series of political revolutions in countries such as Russia, America, Japan, Britain, France, uh, Germany, and Italy, all the leader, leading players uh, in world society in the 20th century made a break based on a new class alliance uh, that was intended to synthesize the nation-state and industrial capitalism, with the capitalists representing capitalism and the traditional enforcers representing the nation-state, which is a deeply regressive model of how society might be conceived. It actually gave rise to our own great discipline anthropology in its modern form. Because in order to justify what this thing was and why the people in it should be considered the same, anthropologists in Poland and other places went out and proved that the peasants were the, that they were able to ethnographize and body the tradition that would uh, lay down the basis for a fake national identity serving the interests of an urban class. So, I mean, all of these things model things up. And, uh, but I would argue that still, despite all this complication, that, that what happened in the 20th century is that Africa started filling up in terms of people. It started becoming uh, almost as urban as the rest of the world, which means a lot. It uh, began to intensify agricultural production selectively, and uh, new classes arose, uh, spanning the tension between local elites and foreign elites, whether colonial or neo-colonial. And this is the, the background to the vision of Africa that someone like Moletti and Becky uh, presents in 
in architects of poverty. It is predicted by Fanon, even at the moment of the anti-colonial revolution, in the wretched of the earth. And it is the idea that African states become weak and venal, and the local rulers increasingly depend on support and alliance with foreign powers, rather than on mobilizing the energies of their own people. And this leads to dictatorship in a variety of civil and military forms. It leads to what the uh, political scientists in their wisdom call neo-patrimonialism, uh, or whatever, uh, bias politics of the belly. So this is what happened. And the other thing that, so what happened to the economy? What happened to all these people who ended up in the cities? Well, I mean, according to academic and intellectual bureaucracies, 70 to 90% of Africa's contemporary population lives in the informal economy. But of course, these figures are just plucked out of the air because they, they're not based on measurement. In the 1970s, a famous uh, economist called Hans Singer said that um, the unemployment in the cities was 30%, and, and yet people were still migrating to the cities. So that meant that unemployment in the countryside must be at least 50%. And, and these, that's how people arrive at these numbers. But the fundamental point is that the mode of production of these uh, migrated urban populations is uh, unregulated commerce in the city, whether you call it the informal economy or whatever. And so if we're talking about the future, what in the 21st century Africa might develop for the benefit of more of its population, then obviously one thing that has to be done is that the existing political structures have to be dismantled by revolutionary means. And secondly, something has to be done to harness the uh, chaotic energies of these uh, unregulated urban markets. So the fundamental point that I'm arriving at is that in order for Africa to develop, we must understand that most of middle Africa has only recently arrived at the old regime, that is, the urban revolution as described by a child. I call it sometimes agrarian civilization. It's uh, cities and states built on a, a population that is uh, overwhelmingly uh, rural in its uh, production. Uh, but in any case, Africa, which many parts of which were, have been for millennia uh, stuck with the old regime, like North Africa, the rest of Africa has arrived at this situation very recently. So one of the things that that does is reduce the structural gap between uh, Central, East, West Africa and the North. The other apparent ex exception, which is South Africa, maybe to a lesser extent, but in the past, Rhodesia also, South Africa is also evolving, if not devolving, uh, since the black majority rule, and is in fact also devolving back into the old regime, away from however distorted the form of racial capitalism that was instituted in the 20th century under a series of segregationist and, and apartheid regimes. I mean, it's one way of, of beginning to think about what the looting of the national purse by the ANC uh, represents in, as a political model. And also the fact that the capitalists aren't investing anymore here. Just, you know, they left, and they left with their money also, in case you hadn't cottoned on. So there's a sense in which the whole of Africa is stuck with the old regime, either for a long time or recently, and what is the antidote to the old regime? A liberal revolution. This is what happened in England and France and Italy, to some extent also the slave revolution in Haiti, 
was a liberal revolution. Now the fact is that our notions of revolution have been overwhelmingly dominated by the experience of revolution in the 20th century, which is mainly about the socialization of capitalist development to some extent. Also, uh, a good part of it, the mobilization of peasantries in anti-colonial revolutions and so forth. What I'm suggesting is, it's worth thinking about what the liberal revolutions were and perhaps could be. So, the main idea of a liberal revolution is freedom and economic progress. It's basically about people having more freedom of movement than they had under more restrictive regimes. I mean, this is particularly poignant in South Africa where the, the containment of movement of the population was the whole principle of apartheid. The first thing about a liberal revolution is that people get to move in a way that, I mean, I, I think I mentioned before that the Hegel says America isn't a society because anyone who doesn't like where he lives can just go and move somewhere else. You can't have a society based on that. You can't allow people to move just when they feel like it. But the fact is that a liberal revolution is dedicated to that. I mean, historically, money and markets have always introduced some mobility into rural societies. They were particularly a means of escape for women, for young people, for slaves, for serfs, and for ethnic minorities. So the first principle is, is movement. I mean, I, there's a sick American joke. I don't know why I remember it so vividly, but it goes, Mommy, mommy, why am I walking round in circles? Shut up or I'll nail your other foot to the ground. So, this is a major feature, liberation from repressive regimes that hand people in and keep them stuck in place. And also the idea of economic progress. Now these liberal revolutions had uh, three related uh, concepts or aims. The first was the liberation of markets. The liberation of markets from the enforcers from the traditional thugs who stole what people had or, or traded in the name of the king or some other predatory authority. So markets are what, you know, the, the freedom of accorded by markets is one element. The second is democracy, that somehow the people must acquire greater control over their, um, their own political affairs, and the third notion is science. That's to say, you will not be able to achieve these changes unless you know how the world works. It takes an awful lot of knowledge to figure out how you can get these things against what you've had. And all of these uh, three, certainly in the Western liberal tradition, have an atomistic pre premise. They're all quite individualistic, the pattern of voting, the pattern of uh, contracts, the, even the, the idea of how you know, knowledge is acquired. But in any case, uh, whatever their symmetries, they were understood to be a package. And this package was celebrated, of course, by the liberal enlightenment in the 18th century, and it has been systematically denigrated by anti-liberal intellectuals ever since. In the whole of the 19th and 20th century, there has grown a very powerful anti-liberal intellectual tradition which says that this idea of freedom through market science and democracy is a con. It is in fact a renewal of oppression, exploitation, the elevation of some sections of society to the expense of the rest. And you lot basically buy into that because two-thirds of the people who teach you subscribe to it. I mean, you know, I grew up with it. I mean, the anti-liberal tradition is something we have to fight against, I think, in some ways. The developments of social democracy and of social revolution aimed at working classes, rural and urban, I mean, is not something we can simply walk away from. 
but we have actually forgotten what it was, what were the, the forces that destroyed the old regime, which was this. So, you know, I mean, in, in a liberal revolution, I mean, the aim would be to free Southern Africans from the mess of tariffs and visas and controls and policemen shaking you down at every possible uh, opportunity. There are traditional patterns of movement in the region that Africans have always followed and continue to follow, and now they're harassed at every turn, made criminals by the regimes that fragment this possibility of regional movement and live off it. That's just one aspect of what a liberal revolution might have as its calling card. So I wanted to draw your attention. I mean, this means that we have to understand the old regime. How do old regimes work? And the best book is Alexis de Tocqueville, The Old Regime and the French Revolution. This is something that he wrote after democracy in America. And it was his last book, in fact, came out in the 1850s. It's an extraordinary piece, because in Democracy in America, when he was young, he thought there's nothing like what's, uh, what he observed in, in America. So he thought America was unique in some respect, and he wrote his book accordingly. And then he spent 20 years in the municipal archives in France, concluded that very similar processes were already happening in France during the first half of the 19th century also. And he then developed this as a, a general critique of the old regime and, and, and an analysis of what might replace it. But in uh, this book, he asks, you know, why did the French Revolution happen? What were the preconditions of the French Revolution? And why there, not at other places? And his, he has four answers. The first one is ideas of freedom and equality circulating publicly through the likes of Rousseau and Voltaire and the liberal enlightenment. That these ideas achieved very wide circulation in the second half of the 18th century. The second thing is that French society, and I've referred to this earlier, he believes is a particularly rigid form of uh, social stratification. I mean, it's very difficult for, for people to change their position at that time in France. Even now, you know, I mean, you know, the, the populations that, that man the state that go through the leading school, the Ecole Normale Supérieure, uh, Sciences Po, Renan, I mean, there's, there's still a strong caste element to the government of, uh, even though entry is often made more free than it perhaps once was in the past. So he's arguing that this was a very rigid society, and he, he contrasted it with England from the feudal period onwards, where he said basically the English aristocracy opened their ranks to soldiers and merchants. People who won battles and made lots of money were quickly absorbed into the aristocracy, but in France they were excluded. I mean, there was no upward mobility of that kind. The third reason, and this is really interesting, is not that things got worse materially or economically in France, in the, in the 18th century, but that they got better. In other words, people actually made improvements in their economic livelihoods, quite significant, across a range of classes. And this, combined with the second, created pressures that were really uh, intensified in some ways. The combination of rigidity and people pushing at the boundaries of class division. And the fourth thing that he says is none of this need have led to a revolution if the regime was smart and adopted a pressure cooker model. That's some of the steam out. But in fact, they chose the, set, the, other, the opposite, which is they reacted 
repressively. So these are the four things. A circulation of liberal ideas, rigid social stratification, economic improvement, and political repression, in his view, combined to produce the French Revolution. In the last couple of years, there's been quite a lot of uh, unsettled action in North uh, Africa and the Middle East. Uh, there is a, a wonderful book by Beatrice Ibu, which is in, in English, which is called The Force of Obedience. And she looks at the regime of Ben Ali, the Tunisian dictator who was overthrown in 2011. And she's asking, how did this guy for 22 years keep a lid on everything? And of course, many of the features, the politics of domination, are quite commonplace, but I think the originality of her analysis is that people were made insecure in their everyday economic lives. And if you had to pay taxes, if you had to get a license, uh, anything that involved uh, interaction with the police or the bureaucracy, your vulnerability was magnified. And indeed, you know, the guy who torched himself and set off the flagration did it after he was refused the renewal of his license to sell on the street. She's saying that people uh, can bear a lot of things, you know, being in prison, being spied on by the secret police, being rounded up and shaken down and so on and so forth. But what they can't bear is for their everyday uh, continuous economic life to be subject to this kind of arbitrary harassment. And this is the fundamental view of the liberal enlightenment, that uh, the, the main point of the old regime is its arbitrary character. After all, the only reason they're in power is because their ancestors conquered the country 500 years ago or whatever. I mean, they have no justification for being receiving all the loot that, that they just found, found it. And also, the, the, the way in which absolute power is exercised is by destabilizing the ordinary everyday expectations that people have to live by in order to get by. And this is a, a really important issue, it seems to me, for a human economy program. You know, John and I, uh, quite early on, thought it would be very good to, to see how different classes for example, in South Africa, experience public bureaucracy, taxation, licenses, whatever. I mean, it's one of the main benefits of the mobile phone banking revolution in, in Kenya, that the peasants living in the countryside, instead of having to walk 50 kilometers, be given the runaround by petty officials and maybe not even allowed to pay their taxes, can now send their taxes in through a mobile phone, no harassment. I mean, these things are really important. I mean, how a regime destabilizes people. So, and the interesting thing is that she made her, uh, her study before the Tunisian revolution, or whatever it was, the insurgency, and she herself, I mean, saw the, you know, the bad end of the Ben Ali regime. I mean, she was harassed, she was, uh, I mean, her office in Paris was broken into and, and papers stolen and all this kind of stuff. So, you know, it isn't a joke uh, doing serious research into this stuff. Uh, and not everybody can do it. So we have to think again about liberal revolution the nature of old regimes, how they can be overthrown. There's a lot of evidence of discontent in South Africa today, you know, wildcat strikes, uh, people emptying uh, rubbish on the streets, uh, on the roads, in the rural areas, in, uh, against rates and so on and so forth. But what, you know, what, what vision do people have of what they're fighting against and what they want to replace it with? I mean, that's our Tax. We don't have to join the barricades, but we have to be clear about what 
democratic agitation of a spontaneous sort by people on the ground, what it might add up to. And that's one of the reasons why it simply isn't enough for you to go off and do an ethnographic field study and report what's happening. Because we have to say what might happen. And we have to educate people as a result of that. But it is based on scientific research. It has to be. That's much more important than you know going along and waving a flag with the white, well, you know, with the strikers. So the last part of my uh, my lecture will be concerned with the vision that I articulate in these two lectures for uh, African development in the 21st century. So what is it that Africans are going to produce that the world wants to buy? Well, the minerals, obviously. We've already got there. It's clear that given Africa's resource endowments, that minerals will continue to be a major part, and of course they will probably sabotage many democratic movements in various ways. What about agriculture? What about manufacturers? I mean, since uh, the anti-colonial revolution, African agriculture has been stifled by uh, subsidized imports from Europe and North America. I mean, I've already told you that this was the result, a reaction by these regimes to the interruption of food supplies in the Second World War, and it has led to a massive subsidy, essentially dumping of cheap food on the rest of the world, and uh, this dumping uh, is not regulated or resisted, and to a similar degree, manufacturers are being dumped on the region by China and its uh, Asian uh, competitors. So it's very difficult to see how uh, African agriculture and manufacturers can develop without some kind of protection from global dumping. And, and in order to achieve such protection, they have to be well represented in the councils of of international trade. I mean, obviously. I mean, I think a very uh, straightforward case can be made that the African uh, countries, regions, and so on should receive a measure of protection from this international dumping so that their own uh, agricultural manufacturers can develop with some protected home market. That was essentially the uh, recipe of of Sir James Stewart and his principles of political economy, and they had him classified from Smith onwards as a regressive mercantilist. But the fact is, the first thing is that you know these things are, are high bulk, low value, and they need uh, some stimulus from the home market. But this can't be achieved. I mean, you should have a look at at the the, the, the regulatory bodies in the control, communications, customs, trade, whatever, intellectual property. I mean, they are dominated by small African countries who are there because they will do what the Americans say they want. You know, I mean, the fact is that Africa has to achieve more effective common representation in the councils of world trade, and we are entering a period where the sheer volume and share of the global population, regardless of whether Africa is actually also an emerging economic power, all of these things can be addressed and should be addressed. But my argument is that the best place to look is services. I mean, the fastest growing uh, sector of world trade is in services, entertainment, media, education, information services, financial services, a whole bunch else. I mean, it really is, I mean, do you know what the United States' three principal exports are? Films, music, and software. That's why they have this internet intellectual property treaty. That's why, you know, they browbeat these small governments and say, sign up and send the representative to make sure that intellectual property law at a global level serves our interests. But the fact of the matter is that what we are doing here 
is the booming sector of world trade, education, entertainment, sport, I mean, arts, all of this stuff. So the question is, what are the young people, and they are overwhelmingly young, who live in African cities, what are they going to do? Not only what are they going to do with each other, but what could they do that would allow them to sell what they do to the world? And the fact is that there's a great tradition in the world likes African cultural products. They like African music, they like African plastic arts. And, you know, there are areas that are already booming, like, for example, Nollywood. Did you know that Nigeria's movie industry is now larger than Bollywood in India? I mean, do you know why Hollywood is where it is? The American film industry grew up on the East Coast, where all the machinery and patents were held by Thomas Edison. And he used these to squeeze as much as he could so they went as far west as they could to Los Angeles and started producing a wildcat operation in which there were no patents, no rules, no nothing. I mean, Walt Disney, uh, his first uh, uh, Mickey Mouse cartoon was a direct rip-off of uh, Buster Keaton's Steamboat Willie. And yet, a hundred years later, Walt Disney is suing Chinese cartoons, cartoonists for ripping off the image of Mickey Mouse. W.G. Griffith, who was the greatest American director of all time, was making five films a week. And it's the same in Nollywood. First of all, they're, sit, they're stuck in, the, in, in Lego slums so far from law and order that nobody can get to them unless they're allowed. They make films for $5,000 or less. And they split into Igbo, English language, Yoruba, Yoruba language movies, and so on and so forth. It's incredible. You should go to Lower Manhattan. I mean, on a Sunday morning around 30th Street on the east side, there are two blocks selling Nigerian movies. Two blocks. And they're in CDs, and they cost a dollar or two dollars each. And they're taking over the world. And of course, mobile phone banking is another example. I mean, did you know about the Maurid? Uh, the Maurid of Senegal. This is a, a, an order formed after a Sufi saint in Senegal of the 1920s. They have an amazing international trading organization. In Europe, they're particularly noticed as uh, Senegalese migrants who have their goods in a a rolled uh, up bag, as it were, and lay them out and then move when the police come and so on. But these people, they supply a large proportion of the United of shoes to the United States. They do it through Harlem. And, uh, I mean, about 10 or 12 years ago, they switched their supplies from Italy to China, and the Italian shoe industry collapsed. These things are going on. I mean, it's not just, you know, people peddling on the streets. When I went from Paris to Lisbon recently, I was surrounded by Angolan women, you know, traders. But eight of these fat, gorgeous women, very loud, speaking their own language and no other, with two rather weedy men kind of loading the bags into the, you know, basically doing the heavy lifting. And these women go from Luanda, which has enormous demand. They go to Rio for, for Brazilian bikinis. They go to New York for black beauty products. They go to Paris, uh, Johannesburg, Dubai. And they just collect all this stuff and sell it at inflated prices. And before you dismiss this, I mean, this is what the, the liberal revolution really is. I mean, just imagine, these women were trapped in a civil war that lasted for 30 years. In that time, the men shot each other and blew up each other's legs, and the women somehow kept trade going between rural areas. They were, but they were in, in, tremendously constrained by the politics of warfare.
The fact that they can jump on a plane, exchange their currencies to, from whatever they like to whatever they like, buy this stuff, come and sell. I mean, it's an amazing symbol for me. In this lecture, and I'll summarize it briefly here, uh, I asked what are the cultural sources for a liberal revolution in Africa? And of course, one of them has to be tapping into the energies of the urban informal economy. What I emphasize is, and with some thought to traditional social structures, I believe one of them is the energies of women and young people. Gender and generation. I mean, what we're going to see is a new take on gender and generation. And we should be looking, I think, particularly at women for that. And part of the tension in this society is that the women are already moving to a degree that the men are not. The second thing is the religious revival. There's been a huge religious revival, both Christian and Muslim, from Pentecostalism to Sufism. Uh, these religious energies always have an economic dimension and the economy has always been significantly religious. And so I think it's very important, if we ask what are the social forms that organize this booming commerce, then religion would have to be a major feature. People are doing it through churches. Uh, the third thing is the explosion in modern arts. I mean, you never read about African arts in Western newspapers. Uh, you read about famine and war and uh, poverty and all the rest of it. But the fact is that, that Africa is going through a cultural revolution and has been for several decades in the plastic arts, in literature, film, drama, and so on. And I believe that these energies in the arts, you know, are an important contributor to what happens next. I mean, there are people doing all this stuff, creative stuff, you know, out on the streets of Johannesburg. And then perhaps there are graphic designers, you know, in, in commercially oriented uh, offices that can do something about this. But it is the case, you know, if you think, you know, Johannesburg, is known internationally you know, as the principal center for art production in Africa. And uh, these, these energies and uh, developments are very important. The fourth dimension is the internet I mean, and mobile telephony, the digital revolution in communications. I've already mentioned that Africa missed out more or less on the first and second industrial revolutions based on steam and coal and then electricity grids but Africa is certainly taking the lead in many places and if you think, you know, Kenya is not just a one-horse story about M-Pesa and uh, Safaricom as a result of some collaborations with Western corporations over a number of years Kenya is the world leader in recycling computers to be sold uh, very cheaply to consumers in uh, markets without very much money. So we have a, a situation in, in the States, let's say, where people have now got their third laptop or whatever it is, and the market is virtually saturated. But the market is not saturated here. But it requires some adjustment to meet its needs and to go with them and help shape them. Finally, I want to mention the second African diaspora. The second Africa, that's the, the African diaspora that has been formed by migration since 1945, as opposed to the first diaspora that was formed by the Atlantic slave trade. And increasingly, this uh, diaspora is migrating to Asia for obvious reasons. But it is uh, genuinely global. And what is interesting and needs to be investigated is what is the relationship between this diaspora and economic development at home. And one of the things that I have, one of my hypotheses 
is that these people are not interested in their nationality as such. They usually conceive of their relationship with home society in sub-national categories. So that the, you know, but, the, but again, there has to be some uh, serious uh, discussion because I, you know, I really believe, uh, you know, for example, in the largest printing company in South Africa, is run by Michael Harish Mater. His grandfather published uh, pamphlets for Gandhi before the First World War in Durban. He himself was educated in the United States. He then worked for NEC, the uh, calculating company, for 10 years. He came back, took over his father's company, what was left of it, made it corporate, sold 25% to a BEE firm and 25% to Barclays. And he's been running ever since. He got contract for uh, Telcom's uh, telephone directory, which is not a bad thing to have. So there are important synergies and alliances that could occur uh, if the uh, diaspora were harnessed more effectively to uh, what's going on within Africa itself. I and mean, I know there's nothing intrinsically systematic about saying, you know, women and youth, religious revival, modern arts, digital revolution, the new diaspora, but I believe that those elements contain within them uh, some of the cultural dynamics that might underpin an African economic revival. But more than anything else, Africans need to develop their regional associations, make them more powerful, uh, rationalize movements of people and goods and money within the region, and represent African interests more effectively in the Council's world trade. That's it. <laughs>